Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 90. Today in the show, we're joined by Randy Newberg to discuss the greatest threats to public lands and public land hunting in America. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sick Gear. And today, as I mentioned, we've got Randy Newberg on the show with us again. And Randy joined us last September uh, for a conversation in which we discussed a lot of different conservation and hunting related topics, but we didn't get to really dive into one of Randy's favorite issues, and that's public lands. Now, fast forward to January, a month ago, and we had Whit Fosberg from the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership with us on episode number 87, I think it was. And during that interview, we discussed what Whit believed were the most important conservation issues of 2016. And one of those was this threat of the transfer of public lands. It's been talked about a lot these days. So coming out of that conversation, we've been getting lots of questions and comments from listeners and readers wanting to better understand what exactly the deal is with this public lands transfer idea. So in short, we decided that we need to have a full episode dedicated to this very topic and public lands and all the various threats to them. So it seemed to me that there's no one better to discuss this with than Randy Newberg. So obviously we now have Randy Newberg on this episode, which I'm excited about. And if you didn't catch our first episode with Randy, I'd highly recommend giving that a listen. It's episode number 72. But if you haven't done that, and if you're not familiar with who Randy is, he's first and foremost, just a serious hunter, both for deer and other big game species. He's the host of Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg on the Sportsman Channel, I believe, and the Hunt Talk Radio podcast, which I'm a big fan of. He's also a board member for the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and a very active advocate for hunting in public lands. So with all that said, this is going to be what I think is going to be a terrific conversation focused on one of the very most important topics for hunters today. Uh, but that's just my two cents. Dan, what do you think? Are you ready for this? Are you excited about this? Do you do you think this is going to be interesting? Yes, I do think it's going to be interesting. Um, so from a political standpoint, I have never really been into politics at all. Never. Mm-hmm. Like I despise politicians type of view on life. And this year uh, I got a little bit of a fire under my seat and I said, you know what? I'm going to pay it more attention to – you know, to, to the political field. And I'm going to start, you know, really honing in on what candidate really meets as many values for me as, as possible. And, uh, I know that today's episode kind of correlates with what we're going to be talking about today. And, um, I'm looking forward to seeing what Randy has to say about, about some of that stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think he'll have some, some great perspective as far as, as far as hunters who are active in the political arena and you know getting involved and making sure that the hunter's voice is heard, Randy is one of the most active out there that I know of. Um, I know he's frequently 
talking with people that are making these decisions, going to Washington, D.C. or going to the capital of Montana or wherever it is. And he's uh, he's making his voice and, and the hunter's voice heard. So I think it's going to be interesting to, to dive into these public lands issues and maybe some of the other things surrounding the politics of, of hunting and uh, habitat and all of that. Um you know, these topics can be sometimes a little messy, right? Politics is something that people can get pretty fired up about. Um, and it's funny you mentioned that you really haven't paid attention to politics much in the past, but now you are. I've been kind of on like a roller coaster ride. Like there's a period of time where I was like really into it and I paid a ton of attention to it and I was like super gung-ho about what I thought and then I kind of fell away from it. And then again, some number of years ago, I was like really gung ho and I had, I felt like I had really strong connections with certain uh, parties or people and things like that. And now I'm back on the backside. I'm, I'm kind of down the bottom side of the roller coaster again, where me personally, and this is just me, but I'm very disenchanted with a lot of things going on in politics today and in Washington, D.C., and in all of our various. Um, state capitals, what's happened. There's a lot of things going on that I'm just kind of not happy about. Um, And a lot of the just the, I don't know, it's just gotten so nasty, so divisive, so polarized. Um, And so I'm really, I kind of have removed myself from any type of political party. I'm just just a person. I'm a guy who's interested in trying to find someone who's going to stand up for hunting and for our second amendment rights and for our public lands and and for wildlife and wildlife habitat and all these things that mean a ton to me and of course other things too um but it's getting really hard <laughs> at least for me these days to find anyone that really meets all those criteria right um so on a, on a scale of 1 to 10 how how happy are you with the uh, our options these days from a I mean, the one that everyone's talking about right now is the presidential race. So without getting into too much, how do you feel about our options as a hunter? As as a hunter, as far as uh, I'm – today I did research on some of my breaks at work and found out that a majority of the Republican Party uh, candidates that are still out there, not all of them, but a majority of them would – are serious about – transferring federal lands back to state management yeah and we'll we'll avoid driving getting into that right now we'll wait till randy gets on to discuss you know why that's something that i think you and i are both personally concerned about right um but yeah that's that's Uh, concerning and then on the other hand though here's here's some and i hate to dive too much into this because you know it inevitably pisses people off but you know i get really concerned when i hear things like that because these guys and gals want to get rid of some of these public lands for one reason or another um so i'm like okay that's something i definitely don't agree with but then you've got other people that are running where you know you worry if, if so and so gets into office what does that mean for our you know our right to bear arms and, and hunt with different mm-hmm. types of weapons and all these things so as far as i'm concerned there's no candidate that i can see that i i'm really comfortable with that can who can check all these boxes for and the it's sportsman all, it's all like voting when you vote it's it's always the lesser of two evils and i hate that it has to be that way yeah very true it's uh that's I was literally I was just vacuuming today. I was vacuuming sitting and thinking about this topic and just saying like you've got that's exactly it. You have to pick your poison and what am I willing to compromise on? And unfortunately these days it's like either way you're compromising on some pretty big issues. Right. Um so I guess I guess because of that, that's probably why a lot of hunters just 
put their heads in the sand and don't want to get involved in this kind of thing at all and just say, I want to go out and hunt and just do our thing, which right. is which is great and good, and I, we all love doing that too. But unfortunately, I think there's so many things happening today, Dan, that we've talked about in the show and at other points that are kind of demanding that we hunters need to start getting involved more or else, you know, change is going to happen and it's not going to be the change we want to see. Yeah. And at the same time, we need certain hunters to maybe not voice their opinions on certain, <laughs> certain subjects. Jesus. Can I vent? Is it okay uh, if I vent? Uh, you can vent. But How much what, time do we have? Uh, we've got like 10 minutes to vent, okay. but we got to make sure we don't, we don't, well, I'm going to let you say whatever you want to say, cause it's your opinion. <laughs> okay. So here's the deal. This is, and this is the straw that broke the camel's back. So typically Mark, you know me, I'm pretty laid back guy. I go with the flow. I never am too fired up about anything. Uh, I roll with the punches, you know, it takes a lot for me to get really worked up about specific, you know, any, and really anything. I mean, my daughter, or son has to really crap on the carpet like seven or eight times before I get mad at him, you know, that kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm and that's real... like before you even clean it up or just before you get mad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, at work, right? So anyway, at work, there's this board and on this board at work, it said, long story short, every month there's a new phrase or a question on it. Like what's your favorite baseball team or what's your favorite picnic food or, you know, something like that, you know? And this one was, can I, can I say pause? Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. This is totally not the topic. I thought you were going to go down. I thought you were going to, I thought you were going a different direction with this. I know, Um, but it it will lead back to it. Oh, it does. Okay. So sorry. Continue. So today, uh, this month, February's is, what is one reason that you want to live a longer, healthier life? Something along those lines. And I never take part in this board, never take part in it. And one day I'm sitting there eating my breakfast burrito and I'm looking at this board. And the first thing that pops up into my head, you know, cause every other people have already written, uh, you know, I want to spend as much time with my family as possible. I want to see my grandkids grow up, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so I walk up there and I write, kill a 200 inch whitetail. And that's what I wrote on this board. Now, yep. for the for the listeners of this podcast, that probably doesn't. I mean, Mark, would you want to kill someday? Maybe a two hundred inch whitetail. I mean, sh- that'd be cool. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the reason I hunt, but it would be one. I mean, it'd be if, awesome if it yeah, happened. It'd be awesome. So you know, it's not my main hunting goal, but it's it would be cool if it happened because obviously, from a from a statistics standpoint, killing a two hundred inch buck is is a rarity. And so I go back to my desk and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. So I wrote, I, I participated. Which was good. You, you participated yeah. in workplace culture, Dan. You were being a valuable yep. member of society. That's a positive thing, Dan. Right. <laughs> but, so later that day, or as I'm, I think it was as I'm leaving yesterday, someone erased my comment. Now, you didn't actually see them doing it, right? You just I, no, saw I, that it yep. was erased? I saw that it was erased. And I'm like, hmm it kind of ticked me off a little bit. Yeah. So this morning I come back to work. I write up, right up there again, kill a 200 inch whitetail <laughs> and someone erased it again. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. And wow. I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy to make waves in the workplace just because, you know, I go there, I get my work done. I participate and I try to make the workplace workplace better from a process standpoint. And that's my job. And, and then I, 
I got this in the back of my head. Like I'm thinking about it all day long. What would happen if I erased somebody else's dream or goal up there? How would they feel? I'm like to the point now where I've talked myself into potentially going to human resources to bitch about it. I, I don't know. Is that something that that maybe I shouldn't get worked up about and just let it flow, go with the flow? Or is it something? I mean, I feel like of of all things, it like is now where I make my stand. I can understand. I can understand where you're coming from. I mean, you're, you're, I think you're absolutely, excuse me. I think you're absolutely right that if you erased someone else's thing and they found out about it, someone would be pretty upset about it and would complain about it and say, Dan doesn't respect the fact that I want to live a long life because I'm a, a Democrat or because I love my grandkids or because I love the Michigan state Spartans or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so I think that's pretty unfair that, they can do that because you're a hunter and maybe they disagree with that um, and do it twice and think they can get away with it. So I, I don't think it's a, I think that's a fair thing to talk to someone about. I mean, and, and that's the thing, like maybe they're, and the first thing I thought of was, okay, maybe they're offended or they're worried about the word kill, right? which still anytime you eat a hamburger, you're responsible for killing a cow. Right. If you take part in that, you have to be somewhat responsible. Uh, yeah, man. The thing is, and right when we talk about this a lot, people are so they're so disconnected from reality right. when it comes to things like that. You know, and I think um, it's interesting you bring this up because last week I was at the SCI convention in Las Vegas. That's Safari Club International. Um, I was there covering it for Outdoor Life, um, kind of examining some of these issues and, and topics that have been in the news a lot with trophy hunting and conservation and stuff like that. Um, and there were a bunch of anti-hunter, anti-hunting protesters outside the convention and pro, or, uh, petitions online trying to cancel the show um, because of these different auctions for gear and guided hunts and different things, and they're calling it pay to slay. Um, so... I don't mean to derail your story, Dan. Um, oh. I just want to mention one thing. It's, it's interesting. You know, I happened to be leaving the resort to go get dinner, and as I walked out, I walked actually right through this group of anti-hunting protesters who were on the corner of the street, and they're all there, you know, still talking about Cecil the lion and killing these beautiful animals and how bloodthirsty we are and et cetera, et cetera. And I just kind of stood there looking at these people and their signs and the stuff they're saying, and it's just kind of like unbelievable. Like, do you... Do you, do you know what you're saying? Do you know what you're talking about? Like they're wearing leather shoes, leather belts, wearing their leather purses. They're, you know, I'm sure they're going out to dinner, going to have a steak tonight. I mean, there's so many people that are disconnected from reality and they see what we do as hunters as barbaric um, when in short, we're simply just actively participating in something and taking responsibility for ourselves that is happening even you know, they are doing the same thing in some ways, but just allowing a surrogate to do it for them. And they feel better right. about it because they don't need to be involved in it. Um, right. Interestingly, though, I was standing there at the crosswalk waiting for the light to, t to change. And I had all these guys and girls all around me with their signs yelling and screaming and stuff. And I'm standing there just waiting to cross the road. And I look in front of me across the road and I see there's a newspaper photographer snapping pictures of all of us. And I realized I'm in this picture with like 40 <laughs> anti hunters, and I'm like, oh geez, don't don't get me in this picture. <laughs> I'm not with them. Oh man. Yeah. So that that pissed me off a bit, and then I go back to my desk 
right? And here we are, me and you talk about this about, about this a lot, that if you're going to be an advocate for hunting, make sure you have the facts, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think you knew one of my complaints, um, as far as hunter retention is concerned is that we, in my, in my opinion, there's certain hunters that we may not want to be the voice for our, our hunting just because they're the, Hey man, if it's brown, it's down the beer drinking, you know, so, you know, that kind of stereotype hunter. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. And, and then I go online and I'm reading this article, which is in a newspaper. The, the, this newspaper person go or this journalist goes and interviews this person. Uh, I'm not going to say his name, but he has a television show and he says booyah a lot. And <laughs> so that narrows it down. And he's given all this, this reporter, all this information that is completely false about uh, chronic wasting disease. And I'm just like, now people are going to, who aren't hunters are going to read this and they're going to think that this CWD isn't really as big of an issue as it, as it really is. Or the hunters are a bunch of idiots. Exactly. So yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm sitting in, I'm just fuming and that kind of dumped fuel on the fire for this little comment that was erased of mine. Something so typically innocent that, you know, I didn't say I'm going to gut shot a, a buck and watch him die over a three day period. You know, I didn't, write that i wrote kill a 200 inch whitetail and someone and it's just somebody and that's why i'm no longer a people person (laughs) (laughs) i'll tell you what guys dan johnson is coming in hot today (laughs) so so i'll get down off my soapbox and i apologize if i kind of went off on a tangent what well we do that's what we do on this show that is what we do but i mean you know what i mean it finally it finally has just built up to the point where i'm just like are you kidding me yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of scary. Some of the the sentiment these days, outside of the hunting community, um, and it's something we talk about a lot. Actually, the last time we had Randy on, we talked about this. We talked about the importance of perception and how yep. the the non hunting public perceives hunters because they have a ton of power. And you know, if if we start having these bad apples give continue to give us a really bad name and keep changing that public perception, all of a sudden we're going to start losing our privilege and right to do these things that we love to do. And uh, as you can see, I mean, there's someone in your office who didn't even want you to be able to talk about the fact that you like to hunt. I, um, I didn't even talk about it. I wrote right, it in wrote chalk. It you guys are still using chalk? Well, it's this little paint on board thingy. <laughs> okay. So, but yeah. It, yeah. Anyway. We should probably, before I start dropping F-bombs. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> this is a good time to stop. <laughs> I, I completely understand your frustration, though. And I think a lot of people listening probably can, too. Because I think I think there's, this is, I hate to go down this road, but there's, like, definitely some, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, gosh, why am I? Uh, wow, Dan, help me out here. Scapegoats? Um, hypocrites? <sighs> Man, I've never had this hard of a time thinking of a word. Usually, but we are being yeah, no, we are being treated differently than others, negatively, because right. of what we do as hunters. And there's a very and we don't, and we very don't easy do anything bad. Right. Exactly. Um, so it's an issue and it's something that uh, I think because of the continued urbanization of our population, I think it's gonna continue to get more and more um, frequent. It's going to happen more often. It's going to be more severe. More and more people are disconnected from hunting and what we do and why we do it. Um, and it's something we have to be really cognizant of. So, right, man, do you think we should, uh, 
Should we? Do you want to keep talking about this, Dan, or should we shut it down and, and bring Randy on and make this a, a three-person discussion? Yeah, we better. I mean, he's the expert, and he he's the probably he's probably the guy that before we, before guys like me and you start throwing punches. He's the guy going, it's not worth it, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Randy will be the voice of reason for us today. Exactly. All right. Well, then let's take a quick break for a word from our partners at Sitka, and then we will give Randy a call. So as we do every week, today we're going to hear from Sitka Gear product category leader, Dennis Zuck. And specifically for this episode, I wanted to hear about rain gear and what factors into creating really high quality rain gear for deer hunters. So here's Dennis to explain. Yeah, I mean, for me, anything that keeps you in the woods longer is important, you know, and and rain gear is a perfect example of that, you know, so it's either going to keep me in the woods longer or if I've won on a long hunt and I don't get to pick the days, you know, it might be the thing that lets me hunt that day where I, I get the opportunity. So it's super important. And I think when you're thinking about, you know, what makes good rain gear. Um, I think you need to think a little bit about what you're trying to do with it, and you need to look at where your reindeer comes, rain, rain gear comes from. Um, so if I'm going to put it as a cover suit, I need to make sure it's sized in a way that's going to let me put it over top of my garment. So that's something that's important. Um, but I think the where it comes from is really important. You know, having spent a lot of time with the folks at Gore-Tex over my years, um, you know, all rain gear is not created equal. You know, if you turn in, you turn that, that rain gear inside out, you're going to see seams, you know, those need to be taped. Those need to be sealed. They need to be done in a way that works well. Um, it needs to have a hood that's going to run the rain off appropriately. It needs the pockets that it doesn't run into. Um, it, it needs to do a lot of things um, to protect you when you're sitting and when you're standing. You know, So think about all the things you're going to do in your rain gear. Think about who's making it and are they paying attention to those details that maybe I don't see. I think those are the parts that make a, make a bulletproof system you know, for that rainy day hunt. So, if you would like to learn more about Sika Gear's rain gear or other items, visit SikaGear.com. And now, let's give Randy a call. All right, with us now on the show is Randy Newberg. Welcome back, Randy. Mark and Dan, thanks for having me. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're, we're excited to chat again. And, uh, you know, for the past, like, 10 or 15 minutes, me and Dan have been kind of going all over the place on issues related to public lands and politics and anti-hunters. We've had a whole heck of a conversation already, so we're, we're excited to bring you in as the voice of reason today, is what we're hoping you can oh, be. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing just got, just completely went off the rails when uh, you bring me in. <laughs> yeah. So before we, before we get too far into all those fun topics that we do want to talk about, um, last time we chatted, I think that was in August maybe, um, it was just before you were about to head off on your fall 2015 hunts. So I was kind of curious, yeah. how did your season end up going? Uh, you guys know how it is where some seasons, it's like everything falls into place. And then some seasons, no matter what you do, it doesn't work out. Uh, Murphy's off. It can't go wrong. It will go wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, Mr. Murphy was riding shotgun with us this season. <laughs> it was... <laughs> It was so hard. I, I've told people if I hunted this hard in most seasons, I would have filled every tag with a blue and crocodile animal. Oh man! <laughs> as, it, as it was, we probably filled half our tags. But oh well, we we got to see a lot of cool places, did a lot of cool things. We had uh, great guest hunters who shot some nice animals. Um, 
just when you're out doing the public land gig like we do, and, and I know your audience is going to be like, oh, Randy, I really feel sorry for you. You right. get to hunt a hundred <laughs> days a year. <laughs> My sympathies. But uh, we, had a, we had a decent season, but for how hard we worked, it should have been better. But that's hunting. You yeah. You got to know how that is. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes you, you, you work your butt off and you don't get what you deserve, and sometimes you're sitting on your butt and it just lands in your lap, and you're like, hmm. All right. <laughs> Somebody yeah. needs to tell me what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dan, Dan's ready for one of those. <laughs> yeah. It, it'll be there, Dan. The, the next time you climb in the tree stand and you turn around just to get ready, here'll be the big box standing right down below you looking at you. That would be nice. That would be nice. Promise you. Yeah, you know, now as I'm, as I'm remembering things, I think our first interview with you, Randy, it aired the week that me and Dan were out on our elk hunt together. And we had one of those elk hunts. Now we were only, it was only a week compared to your, you know, whole season out there. But our week of elk hunting in Idaho was kind of right in line with what you're talking about with kind of everything going wrong. We just got poured on the whole time and Dan didn't bring a good tent. So his tent went uh, debunk on our first night. So we had to (laughs) pack out to get him new gear because everything was soaked and nothing was talking and there was way more hunters than I've ever found back there. So it was just one of those trips where you look at it as a, uh, as a learning experience and that's about it. <laughs> uh, well, you got to have a few of those so that you really appreciate it when the good ones come along. Very true. Very true. That, that, that's how I rationalize that. Anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> you have to, you have to tell your, yourself things like that in the, in the pits of despair, hunting a mountainside, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. You did, uh, if I remember hearing, you did get a, a nice bull. Was it in Mon- Montana? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I lucked out. And uh, this was one of those days when Mr. Murphy was on vacation, is all I can figure, because <laughs> we uh, we were actually, we walked out on this small sliver of BLM land, and the idea was we were just going to glass from that big knob out there. And lo and behold, there's three bulls and 20 cows just tearing it up, rutting, carrying on, making noise. And I ended up shooting one of them, uh, and he ended up being the best bull I've ever shot. Wow. (laughs) That just goes to show. You you go out to glass. I I almost was, I was so unprepared to actually shoot because I was just thinking about, okay, I'm going to glass for the evening hunt and figure out what we're doing this evening. And all of a sudden they start bugling below us and he wanted to be a TV star, so I obliged him. <laughs> Got to love those uh, attention-hungry elk, right? <laughs> yeah. So it, it was fun. We went to New Mexico. I guess Hunter shot a really nice bull there, and in Wyoming, we had a guest Hunter shoot a bull there. And I continued my whitetail addiction um, in Montana. I shot another whitetail. So out nice. of my, I've lived here for 24 hunting seasons, uh, and I. I've filled deer tags every year, which in Montana is not super hard with the number of deer we have, but uh, I've only shot three mule deer in my entire time of living in Montana. All the wow. rest have been whitetails. So Do you... That's a problem. When you, when you grow up in northern Minnesota, you can't get rid of the whitetail or the walleye problem. Yeah, I, I can definitely uh, I can imagine that. Um, when, you, when I think most people think about whitetails in Montana, at least from a Midwestern perspective, I think of like Eastern Montana, Milk River and stuff. Are you traveling way East to hunt whitetails or are you, are you finding some over on the Western side? There's whitetails all over Montana. I shot this whitetail at about 6,000 feet of elevation on the forest service. Wow. Uh, all the elk, all the elk hunters 
go, they just march right past you. I cut up this one drainage and sit on this ridge and whitetails being whitetails in November. He was the sixth buck that I saw that morning. And uh, he was the one that actually decided to stand for the camera because I was filming myself. Wow. Which was really hard. Um, and so he was nice enough for me. And I shot him. But I, I think if people from the Midwest came out to Montana or Wyoming or Idaho whitetail hunting, they'd just shake their head at one, how little hunting pressure there is. Two, the average quality of a lot of our bucks relative to highly pressured places that I grew up in Minnesota, anyhow. Um, and just how much country there is to go and find them. I shouldn't be saying that. Right. <laughs> All my Montana buddies are going to be like, Newberg, shut your mouth. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, you're telling a pretty big chunk of whitetailers out there about your secret. <laughs> and where's yeah. that trailhead located? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, if you wouldn't have to ask too many people because I see them my truck parked there regularly. I'm going to have to start driving like a Toyota Prius or something. Because people see my truck, they're like, oh, I know where Randy was at. And darn it. That's yeah. funny. <clears throat> no, it's we're lucky to live in a in a place like Montana where we do have all this public land and and you know people I, I think you know people believe if you can hunt whitetails in Montana you need private access and there's no doubt that's going to help you. But with a little legwork, uh, the ability to or desire to hike a little bit, maybe a pair of waders to cross a creek or a river that keeps other people from crossing. Um, You'd be surprised how many whitetails you can find here on public land. Yeah, it's definitely intriguing to me. I it's funny you mention it because over the past few weeks I've been sitting here at home trying to figure out where my what my third state should be because I typically hunt my homestead of Michigan. I go to Ohio and then a third whitetail state. And I've kind of moved away this year from doing one of the usual ones I do, like something close to home. I've been thinking, like, this is the year maybe I'm going to head west for, like, a, a totally different kind of western hunt. Maybe North Dakota, maybe western Nebraska, maybe Wyoming or Montana. So these are the things I'm thinking about. So it's interesting to hear, you know, your perspective on that because I've heard that from a lot of people that there's a lot of great deer hunting out that, that part of the country that people just don't know about or don't realize is available. So Yeah. Well, if you decide to come this far west, you guys just give me a call, and I'll tell you where those GPS coordinates are, Dan. <laughs> careful! <laughs> but you'll be sworn to you'll be sworn to a vow of secrecy. <laughs> you got to be careful what you offer, Randy. Dan's liable to take you up on it. <laughs> That's um, just fine. So, fun. so speaking of public lands, though, right? Our, what yep. what I really was hoping we could talk about today, Randy were a lot of things related to public lands and some of the current um, risks facing our public lands. And I know that you are a guy who has worked for quite a long time now on behalf of public lands, public access, and those those places and animals that we as hunters um, have the have the opportunity and privilege to hunt. Um, so I, I guess I wanted to cover a lot of things, but the first and foremost aspect of this is this whole issue of the transfer of federal public lands. It's been talked a lot over the past year or two. Most recently with the whole standoff in Oregon, there's been a new light shined on it. It's been talked about a little bit in regards to the presidential uh, race going on right now. So it's definitely in the media. It's something that people, I think, need a need to have a strong understanding of. But right now, I think there's still a lot of questions, especially for guys that are, you know, our audience here in the Midwest, East Coast, South, wherever it might be, 
who aren't necessarily in, are as involved as maybe someone in Wyoming or Montana or Nevada is where there's tons of public land. Um, yeah. So we talked about this issue a little bit. A couple weeks ago, we had Whit Fosberg on the show, and we spent maybe five, ten minutes talking about this topic. But I was hoping that you, Randy, could help us really drill into it. So uh, could you maybe, to, to really start us out here, could you explain yep. to us, you know, what – what is this issue? What when someone says the transfer of public lands, what are they talking about, and why yeah. do these people want to do something like that? Well, I'm not sure how much time we have, guys, because we could spend a 24-hour podcast on this. One, but, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to touch on the high points that are relevant to to hunters. Um, and the reason I say hunters is in the West, 70% of hunters in the West, west of the Great Plains, hunt on federal public lands. So that's why it's a really big issue to hunters in the West, just because it's where most of us hunt. Um, But the the premise of this argument is that the federal government should transfer the lands to the state and let the state manage them. And, you know, when you first hear it, it's like, oh, okay, not a bad idea. Um, And for a lot of people who live in a state that their state lands are very friendly to hunting, um, it really sounds like a good idea because they think that all states operate maybe the way their state does. So I'll use the example where I grew up in Minnesota. Just about all the state lands are open to hunting. Pretty much all the state lands are open to most everything. Then you come to Colorado, and I'm just using some examples here because usually these examples will illustrate the concerns very quickly to to the listener. So you come to Colorado and you see on the state land there are these little blue squares on your map. Um, you cannot hunt those state lands. So we got 23 million acres of BLM and Forest Service in Colorado. But if it was transferred to the State Land Board of Colorado under the premise that this whole state transfer idea is, those 23 million acres of currently accessible federal lands the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Forest Service would no longer be available for us to hunt unless the Department of of Wildlife in Colorado went and leased the hunting rights on those lands. Well, they don't have the budget to do that. Um, So uh, the the reason I use Colorado is such an obvious example of how each state has different rules about access and restrictions on the state lands that are controlled within that state. It's not like federal lands where if you go to Montana, to Michigan, to Georgia, to New Mexico, the federal lands are all pretty much the same access rules. It's, it's very, very different by state. So in that example, let, let's just walk it through. The federal government transfers all those BLM lands to Colorado. How are we going to replace 23 million of acres that right now is currently open to hunting? No, no options. I don't think. I don't know how you could. I, I don't know how it is. So, and people say, well, he's just using one really bad example. Well, let's talk then about New Mexico. New Mexico state lands. You you cannot camp on the state lands. So I hunt the Gila National Forest area for elk a lot. Now, if the Gila National Forest was transferred to the state of New Mexico, I could not camp out there on my elk on the grounds where I had elk hunt. Well, it's about a three-hour drive on some of America's worst roads 
from the nearest place I'd be able to camp to where I would hunt. Well, how, how practical is it for elk hunting that I'm going to drive three hours every morning, hunt, drive three hours that night to come back out to where I'm now allowed to camp and repeat that process every day in my elk hunt? It's it just not practical. In New Mexico, a lot of the state lands that, that have a lot of wildlife values get considered wildlife management areas. And only residents can hunt those and apply for tags in those wildlife management areas. So, I'm, again, I'm just pointing out the real obvious examples. Uh, in my state of Montana, we were like Colorado until 95, I believe, is when we went to Helena and got in the big... It was an ugly dust-up with the legislature. And what came of it is that we agreed we'd be willing to pay a fee if we would be allowed to hunt state lands. So now residents and non-residents get to hunt state lands in Montana, but they have to pay a fee to do that. So if any of you who travel to the West, I assume if 70% of us living here hunt on, on federal lands, the odds are 70% who would travel here to hunt or close to that would probably hunt on on federal lands. So yeah. um, it's, a, it's a huge impact. So, so just in that sense of what would happen under state control and ownership is one thing. If you step back and don't let yourself just be drawn into that argument, but you look at the history of this discussion, this discussion has been going on for decades. And the premise of it is that the federal government should not be allowed to own land, that it's unconstitutional. In spite of the fact that that's went to court many times and it's been defeated every time, um, these people still hold that out as some sort of myth or some, I call it constitutional fiction. Uh, but the, the goal of those groups saying this is to not just get the land transferred to the states. Historically, their goal was let's sell these lands. And so in the late eighties, they really were pushing that. It became what was called the sagebrush rebellion. And they got their teeth handed to them from a political and just public opinion standpoint. So they kind of retreated for a little while and said, boy, let's not say sell the land. Let's call it something else. So that's where they came out with the new idea, the new package they wrapped around it called transfer the public lands. And the reason that they do that is this, the Western states are very, very good at selling their state lands. Um, Nevada at statehood was granted over 2 million acres of state lands. They've sold all, but they've sold 99% of it. Um, Utah was granted over 7 million acres of state land at, or of land at statehood. They're now down to a little over 3 million. Um, Alaska currently sells their land to fund their university systems, their school system, and their mental health system. So if these states obtain the ownership of these lands, it will, the goal of selling them, which has been the, the goal of most people behind this, would be far easier to accomplish if these lands were in state hands than when they're in federal hands. So it's really two issues. It's The easy argument is to say, look, this is really going to affect us from a hunting access standpoint. And the evidence is there. It just takes five, ten minutes to explain it. But the longer-term goal is to get these lands out of public hands. It's, it's that simple. And 
And it struck me that just two weeks ago, and for your your listeners, there's a group called the Mountain States Legal Foundation based in Denver. They're a large think tank of attorneys who are very much into property rights, uh, Western land issues. Uh, some of your listeners may remember Gail Norton, who was a Secretary of Interior under George W. Bush II, um, James Watt, Secretary of Interior under Ronald Reagan. Both of them came out of this think tank called uh, the Mountain States Legal Foundation. And why, is, why am I bringing that up? Is because just in the last couple of weeks, as they've seen more and more uh, publicity for this idea of transfer, they've now come flat out. And the president of that organization, who's also an attorney, uh, William Pendley, wrote a very long article. And the title of it, I have it right here, says, The federal government should follow the Constitution and sell the Western lands. So now they're back to, you know, we called it transfer. Let's just say what we want it to be. We want to sell these Western lands. And the part that strikes me as funny is here's an attorney, William Penley, who says the federal government should follow the Constitution. Well, if he's an attorney leading an organization with lots of other attorneys who specialize in this law, why don't they just file a lawsuit and say, hey, this is, this is unconstitutional. Get it turned over. That seems like an easier path. The reason they don't is because they've been defeated every time they've tried it. So their hope is if we can continue to make it sound like it's unconstitutional, if we can make it sound like this is big government against the little guy, we can accomplish this legislatively. Because we've not been able to accomplish it judicially, let's try to get Congress and public support to, to accomplish this. So it's just been recently, in the last month now, that they're back saying, let's just sell these lands which surprised me because it was such an unfavorable uh, advertisement for their cause 25, 30 years ago. Now, I know, um, like I, me and Mark before the show started, uh, had a little conversation about, and I'm just saying, this presidential uh, election year, I've been, I've been focused more than I ever have on politics. And with this and I've done some research before this show, and and one term that kind of strikes me funny is, uh, and especially I think uh, Ted Cruz on the Republican Party has been saying, we want to return the land to the people. Well, if it's public <laughs> land, isn't it already the people's land? Yeah. <laughs> isn't that funny? When he says that, I just laugh. I'm like, aren't we the people? Isn't this yeah. a government for the people, by the people. <laughs> so, yeah, when he says we want to return it to the people, I'm not sure what he means by that. So, <laughs> I laugh when I when I see those same clips because you see him out on YouTube or uh, some of the social media where he's saying, you know, we got to return this land to the, to the people. Is this and trying that, to gain public opinion? Is this like a, a stunt to try to gain, um, I guess public acceptance rates so that somebody would say, you know what? These guys are right. We need to sell all this land. Yeah, I, I think that's what it is, guys, in, in its bigger picture. If it was really a constitutional and legal issue, there are very smart minds that, you know, I gave the example of the Mountain States Legal Foundation. There are very smart legal minds in many places that are promoting this cause. 
if it was strictly a legal and constitutional issue, it would have been in courts and solved a long time ago. It's been in courts many times, and it's always been solved against their favor. So now the mantra, the, the narrative, the talking point is these lands are a burden, these lands are this, these lands hurt, you know, the rural West, blah, 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 blah. And it's building and kind of backfilling a legislative effort that we're starting to see at the state level in the West. And we will be seeing at the national level. I've been to D.C. twice in the last year on this issue. And you see a lot of now national level politicians taking that as the the narrative going forward on public lands. Let's just sell them. Let's just give them to the states. Let's sell them. Let's. And so I do think a lot of what we're hearing, a lot of this effort, a lot of the volume being turned up is part of that longer-term strategy they have to convince Americans that, eh, these lands are a burden, they're a pain in the butt, blah, blah, blah. Let's just sell them. And, you know, if they are able to accomplish that, well, shame on us. So I want, I want to dive into a few of the things you mentioned there, Randy, dive deeper into some of the motivations for some of these things, some of the, a little more of the history. You touched on some of it. Um, but before that, I, I, I kind of forgot to speak to this at the beginning. We've mentioned it before, but I just want to reemphasize the fact that this really is an issue that isn't just a Western issue. You know, this is also something that I think should be very important to a whitetail hunter in Michigan or a turkey hunter in Georgia or a, you know, a grouse hunter in New Hampshire, whatever it might be, because, you know, this is, first and foremost, there are national lands and national forests and public federal public land, not just in the West, but all across the country. I mean, there's tons of deer hunters hunting national forests in Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota, West Virginia. Ohio, there's huge national forest lands in, in places like that. That if all these types of these types of things happen, now you know if you're one of those public land hunters, you're in serious trouble. On the other hand, if you are a private land hunter, you know even as private land hunters, we can we complain about issues with increasing hunting pressure and struggling with with finding places to hunt and different things like that. Well, what happens if millions of acres of public land all of a sudden start getting sold off? in your neck of the woods. Now you're going to have a whole lot more competition to try to find somewhere to hunt, even if you are on private land. Um, and then third, if you ever do have a dream of someday going out and hunting deer or elk or whatever it might be in one of these other Western States closer to you, Randy, that I think a lot of people do have a desire to experience, whether it be to hunt, fish, camp, hike. Um, if you have a dream of someday doing that, well, this is going to have a significant impact on that future for you or your children or your grandchildren. Um, so I just want to I just want to jump in here and reemphasize that this isn't something for whitetail guys in you know Louisiana to, to, to turn your ears off to. If you're in Texas or Michigan or Indiana, I mean, this is something that I think all of us hunters need to stand up and, and take a stand on. Um, it's not something just for Randy Newberg in Montana. This is also something for Dan Johnson in Iowa. Um, yeah. So. <clears throat> Uh, I'll just use an example that's been effective with some of my friends who, you know, again, I grew up in Minnesota, and you're in, in Iowa. The Upper Mississippi River National Wildlife Refuge is between Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa. And the number of friends I have who deer hunt there, waterfowl hunt there, it gets a lot of hunting pressure, simply because it's prey hunting. It's near places where 
hunting access would be difficult. These proposals are to sell that. So who's going to be the, the guy who goes and buys that prime whitetail ground? Someone's going to buy it. And I don't think they're going to say, oh, everybody come and hunt my great whitetail hunting here in northeast Iowa or southeast Minnesota or, or western Wisconsin. I suspect they're going to say, hey, uh, no trespassing here, folks. Um, and so the, there's so many federal lands. I don't care if we're talking boat ramps where you launch on the river. That when you start rolling back the covers of what this argument really is about, it's it's an argument of we don't want public access as it currently exists to be there. And we want these lands in the hands of private parties because we have a ideology that private industry is where things should be. And, and I don't argue that private industry is uh, efficient. I, I mean, <laughs> I started and built my own businesses, and I'm thankful for the returns on that. But I think in this country, we also, one of the things that makes our country so great is we do have these public lands. We do have opportunities for the average person to go to hunt, to fish, to bird watch, whatever it is. And that makes us different than other places. And it's politicians think that they want to sell all of these wildlife areas, all of these boat ramps, all these fishing access sites. Well, I, <laughs> for me, it, it'll be the old over my dead body. Um, you know, it's it's not going to happen, and I don't care where I live. I my attachment to hunting and fishing in the outdoors is such that I'm not going to stand there and just let it happen. And it, it, the argument I use with a lot of the politicians who are trying to push this is I, I give them the studies that were done by the National Shooting Sports Foundation that say the number one reason people quit hunting. The number one reason they don't hunt as much as they previously did and the number one reason cited for why they don't get into hunting if they come from a hunting family is access, accessible lands. So how do you go on this idea that we should get rid of all these lands the public uses for this hunting access and yet try to convince me that you're in favor of hunting? I'm not buying it. So that's... That's why, to me, it's it's very important, uh, no matter where you live in this country, because the, the the public lands, the federal lands in the southeast, in the northeast, in in the upper Midwest, probably get a far higher use rate than the private lands, as far as hunter days per acre, or however you'd want to measure it. You know, I grew up in northern Minnesota. We had uh, Superior National Forest over in northeast Minnesota. We had Chippewa National Forest. And the deer hunting pressure on those lands was intense. And it created opportunity for hundreds of thousands of people. So now we're going to sell those? Where are those people going to hunt if they don't have the money to go buy some of it themselves? So, yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's not just a, a Randy Newberg in the West issue, I guess, is, is the point that you brought up, Mark, and I, I completely agree. Yeah, it, it, it concerns me that different factions try to position this as, as one thing or another, or they'll try to position the groups that are fighting for 
protection as public lands, as anti-hunting. I don't know if you've seen any of the green decoy stuff, but some of that stuff's ridiculous. And it's trying to split hunters up and say this isn't an issue for you or this is an issue that environmentalists are pushing, so you shouldn't support it. Um, and I just want to make very clear, you know, by having you here to discuss these things with us, that this is a, a hunter issue, not just a certain type of hunter, not a certain type of person. This is an American hunter issue that we all really need to, to be aware of and, and take action on. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. And then the thing is, if you want to get a politician worked up who claims to represent hunters, but is supporting this cause, I just tell them, well, your actions are the same as the anti-hunters. Oh my goodness! <laughs> you want to see their blood pressure spike? And I just tell them, look, the studies show what you are proposing is one of the the huge obstacles we face in hunting: accessible places to hunt. Why are you hammering us? Why Why do you want to take land away from us? And for the most part, I don't have an answer. They usually, as politicians are good at, they usually change the topic. Um, or they give some party line of this or that. But, yeah. Uh, what kind of – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just going to say it, it is a real and present threat. I used to pop, just kind of push it aside like, oh, that will never happen. But now seeing the amount of money that is behind the effort, seeing their strategic plans that they have at a national level, mostly in Congress, it is no longer a – a just fringe element that you can ignore. It, the time has come for hunters to take it seriously. So they they sit there and they say, okay, well, if you sell if you sell this state to or this land to the state, then the state sells it, and that's going to help uh, maybe boost the economy of that state just a little bit. Or get you know get some some money flowing into the economy, but at the same time, when you take away hunting land. From the hunters, I'm sure there's got to be some kind of negative effect to to the economy as well. Is that something you'd like to speak on? Oh, I mean, I'll just use examples in the western states. Um, rural western states, and I'll, I'll even dial in more in my state of Montana. Um, the little outlying communities used to be, the you know, hunting season was their second harvest season. You could not get a motel room. You'd have to stand in line and wait for a seat at a restaurant. The gas stations were just, you know, bumper to bumper with hunters gassing up. And over the last 20 years, there's been a lot more of leasing of property uh, or there's been property that's been bought up that it's people who just, they don't want any hunting. They don't lease to an outfitter. They don't lease to a private party. They just want wildlife and they don't have any hunting. That's really impacted these small communities in rural Montana because they, they no longer have this big influx of hunters because there's no place or far fewer places to hunt and hunters have just said, you know what, I'm not going to drive 10 hours, 12 hours just to go someplace and not have somewhere to hunt. So that, that's just a very small example, but there's a lot of examples where the hunting economy is very important to rural America during times of the year. Um, and if we, right now we're seeing a big bust after a big boom in the oil and gas economy. And if there's one thing that's always been there with the hunting economy, the recreation, outdoor economy, it's been pretty predictable and pretty consistent. It's not subject to the booms and busts of a lot of our other stuff. And, but I think at times we as hunters 
have a tendency to not interject that, but it is a very important part to many of the places that, that we travel to hunt. And, and I think another thing worth noting is that, you know, these public lands, they aren't just used by hunters, but also fishermen, hikers, campers, horseback riders in many cases, whatever it might be. And that larger, just not just the hunting industry, but the tourism industry as a whole, I think is really substantial. I think if I remember correctly, it was either Montana or Wyoming I was looking at that that's like the number two industry in the entire state. So, I mean, we're talking serious, serious money, right, Randy? <laughs> yeah, you are. And, you know, it struck me is I out on my forum, I have a big web forum called Hunt Talk, and we've been talking about this a lot. And one of the, the people sent me an email and said, did you know this was going on in Wisconsin? And so he sent me all the information, and in, I think it was late 2013, Wisconsin passed a law that said they have to sell 10,000 acres of state land. Um, and they identified it's got to be landlocked. Or, not landlocked, got to have difficult access, blah, 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 blah. And so I posted a, a comment out there about it on my website. And I could not believe how many Wisconsin guys showed up and either posted or sent me private messages that said, I may not hunt that land, but I use that land to get to this lake or to get to this fishing spot or I, I trap that land or whatever. And and so there's there's a whole lot of other activities going on on these lands. Uh, and when I heard all these comments from Wisconsin, it really opened my eyes to how many other uses there are to these lands for outdoor people besides just the fact, you know, how I look at it is, hey, I, I like to hunt there. But um, so it was quite an eye-opener to me. All right, now before I go ahead with my next question for Randy, we do need to pause here for a brief word from our sponsor of today's episode, Trophy Ridge. And Trophy Ridge is a company that makes archery accessories, such as sights, rests, quivers, and stabilizers. And I've been using their gear for several years now. And one of those items I've been using is a sight called the React Pro. Today, I want to really quickly tell you why this site is so cool. Now, the React Pro has all the standard features of a high-quality site, five pins, bright fiber optics, a heavy-duty body and hardware, but what really makes the React stand out is how you sight it in. And here's how it works. First, you sight in your 20-yard pin as usual, using the toolless adjustments to move that pin up or down, left or right. Once you have that taken care of, though, the real magic happens. Now you sight in your 30-yard pin. But to adjust it, you simply turn one single knob that adjusts that pin up or down along with your 40, 50, and 60 yard pin. And just like that, in about the same time I've been talking to you, your 30, 40, 50, and 60 yard pins are all sighted in. It's crazy, I know, but the mechanics of this site take the distance between the 20 and 30 yard pin that you set and then extrapolate that out to determine where the 40, 50, and 60 yard pins need to be. And remarkably, it really works. So, if you'd like to learn more about the React Pro or any of Trophy Ridge's other accessories, you can visit trophyridge.com. And now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, and I think I think that's another one of those those pieces uh, of the puzzle here that sometimes gets overlooked that you know, these types of changes if we take away these these landscapes, it's impacting a whole lot of different people that, you know, we need to look, bring all these different people together to support what we're trying to do here, protecting these public places. Um, now, I want to take a step back, though, uh, because, you know, when someone looks at this issue, they hear about it, maybe a soundbite, 
there's like some common questions like, well, why is that bad? Or why would they say that? And, and we covered a little bit of it. But one of the pieces that, you know, one of the lines that we hear a lot, and you'd mentioned it earlier, is the fact that this is a constitutional issue. The federal government, this is federal overreach. You know, there's a lot of federal government haters that are saying that this is a, an issue of the federal federal government trying to take too much control and they shouldn't have all this land, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can you explain the history of how states got certain allocations of land and the federal government got certain allocations of land in some of these states out west where this is the, a super, super big issue? Um, because I think a lot of people don't even understand that. And then that, I think when you do understand that, some of these other things have less uh, less power when so and so says it. Yeah. So the way each state was admitted to the union is slightly different. So we all have what are called enabling acts. In other words, the act that allowed the state to become a member of the union of the country. The original thirteen colonies became states under a way different premise than, say, Arizona which I think was 1912, or Alaska and Hawaii, which were 1959. But, and there's always this statement of let's give the land back to the states, is what you'll commonly hear. And that's such a false premise, because the states never really own these lands. When Thomas Jefferson bought from France, the Louisiana Purchase, which covered most of the Missouri River drainage all the way through Montana and Idaho and I mean, to Louisiana, that was federal land. It wasn't like the states at that time, which were, I mean, it was all indigenous people living here at that time. It's not like they ever had that land. So, so that in itself is a false argument. They know it, but it sounds good to say, well, let's give it back to the states. Well, the states never owned it to start with, but... So let's then think about, and again, I'll, I'll use Montana just because I live here and it's, it's a relevant example. When Montana became a state in 18, gosh, what it was, 89, I believe, the federal government said, and when I say they gave Montana two sections out of each township, for those who are not familiar with township range sections, um, Every township is six square miles or six miles wide by six miles north and south. So you have 36 square miles within each township. And each one of those 36 square miles is considered a section. A section is 640 acres. So when Montana became a state, the federal government said, we are going to grant you for the funding of your school systems section 16 and section 36 in every township within your borders. That's what you will get as your lands to fund your state schools. Montana then signed its enabling act that said, we agree with that. We hereby relinquish all of our rights, blah, 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 to any future claims to these lands. They did that. Everyone went along. Hey, great. We're happy. Montana tries to make some money off those lands so that they can fund their school system. That's how these lands became state lands. The state or uh, the federal government retained rights to all the other lands. And then through the Homestead Acts and other stuff, the federal government granted lands to private individuals through other legislation. But that is how the states ended up with a lot of land in the West. And in the West, we had different enabling acts. The enabling acts, I think, pretty much since Nevada forward, and Nevada is a strange situation because it's... uh, 
if you think about Nevada, its motto was called Battle Born. I think it became a state in 1863 or 64 during the Civil War. And even though they didn't have the population or otherwise to really meet the requirements of being a state, the North wanted more states on their side. So they admitted Nevada to the Union. And they did it in a way that some say, oh, it was kind of a mess and it wasn't done right, da da da. But Nevada was the one of the first Western states that gave up rights to any of the federal lands within its boundary. And then you go to Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, all the rest of them kind of followed that same path. So the Western states, their enabling acts, when they became part of the Union, they specifically stated, stated we will give up any claim, any future claim to these federal lands in exchange for getting, as I explained, Section 16 and Section 36. In Utah, they didn't get two sections out of each township. They got four sections out of each township. So each state ended up with a, a different percentage of land granted to them by the federal government that said, hey, you can now lease these lands, you can develop them, whatever you can do with them to raise money, it should help fund your school system. And to, still to date, these lands in western states are a big source of funding our education systems. That's an important. Yeah. Sorry, Randy. That, I was going to say yeah. that that's an important thing to note, right? That these state lands are there for not just uh, you know some of the same mandates that are on federal land, but as a, for the states, it is a funding source. It is something that's supposed Correct. to be used to profit and to pay for whatever things need to be paid for within the state. So that uh, right there, I think speaks to one of the great risks of transferring these lands to the state is that you go from lands managed and owned by the federal government where they have to be managed for multiple uses. So some of that will be leased. Maybe some of that will be for habitat. Some of that will be open to hunters, fishermen, hikers, etc. When that goes to the state, that all changes. And all of a sudden, this could all of a sudden be looked at simply as a profit center. Isn't that that right? Correct. That is correct. All of the western states, when they became states, they set up these state land boards to hold these lands and they're called state trust lands. And if you ever look at a surface map, they're the light blue squares on your surface map. So these western states set up these state land boards, and constitutionally, the state land boards are required to manage these assets, these lands, for a profit. So I'll give you a a great example of what happens when they're not profitable. Oregon have the same requirement. They have a state land board, and anyone who knows Oregon knows there's a big timber industry in Oregon. So in the fall of 2014, after years and years of litigation by groups who didn't want logging to happen on what's called the Elliott State Forest in Oregon, one of their most highly used state forests, they were losing money, losing money because they could no longer generate timber proceeds. Well, they sold it. They put it up for sale. They didn't sell it. They put it up for sale. They notified everybody that, hey, we're going to sell this because it's losing money. Constitutionally, we have to do this. Well, that created a big stir, and everyone got upset, so the land board kind of pulled it back. Now, last I heard, it was they couldn't find a solution. They can't continue to hold it anymore, and I believe that that land has been sold or is being sold. And that's 90,000 acres of state land that's going to be sold to private parties because that state could no longer make money. And that's land that, that is land. that's land that hunters have been using to this point, right? For years, yeah, for years. So 
Utah is really pushing this heavily. So they did an 800-page study. They hired this group to do a study of could Utah afford to take over the federal lands within its state. And the economists who did this, they came forward and said, well, if oil and gas prices stayed, and I can't remember it, they had a bottom threshold of $70-some a barrel and kind of a break-even threshold of $90-some a barrel that then Utah could afford to pay for weeds, roads, uh, maintenance, pay the taxes that the federal government currently pays on these lands, blah, blah, blah. Well, what's oil and gas at right now? Last I checked this morning, I think uh, West Texas crude was hovering right around $30 a barrel. And the long-term forecast is going to be under $50 a barrel for a long time. So how would Utah, under that scenario, pay for all these lands they're now going to take over that we currently have access to to hunt? Well, the reality is they can't. And their constitution says they would have to sell them, just like Oregon is going to sell the Elliott State Forest. So it's, again, on its surface, and, and for anyone listening, small government guy. I'm a CTA in my other life. My job is to disinherit the federal treasury. I mean, my daily life is arguing with the IRS. So I fully get the the government overreach, the headache, the, you know, all that. You, I come from a logging family. I, I, I don't need any, any uh, you know, any more than what I already have for life examples of those frustrations. But what's happening is people with a motive of getting rid of these public lands are using these frustrations in this crisis to try and leverage their long-term goal to get these public lands out of public hands. It, that, that's what it really boils down to. So let's let's speak to something you alluded to there a little bit, the management of these lands yep. and how, you know, could the state afford to handle management? And, and you explained how that would be a struggle for a lot of states. But what about... On the federal side, right now, one of the arguments that these pro-transfer, pro-sale of public lands people are saying is that, well, the federal government is mismanaging all these lands. It's horribly managed. It's not handled well. The states can do better. What do you say to that, Randy? Well, I was in Congress uh, testifying in front of the House Natural Resources Federal Land Subcommittee uh, last April. And I was there to talk about the, the economic value public lands provide in Montana to our, our small businesses. Also there was an economist, very smart guy, who said, here's all the things the states do better in managing lands that the federal government doesn't do. He talked about the fact that the federal government charges about one-eighth to one-tenth of the lease rate for pasture grazing that states charge, that they charge half of the coal royalty rate. They charge only like two-thirds, sometimes a half to two-thirds of the state oil and gas royalty rate. So you went through this big list of things where, in effect, Congress is giving away a lot of value on our, on our federal lands that the states, by their constitutions, can't give it away. They have to charge the most. So the, the pro-sell, the pro-state takeover, whatever you want to call it, the pro-transfer Congress, people in that committee were patting that that guy on the back that economist yeah that's right that's that's how the the federal government is is kind of messing things up and how the states do such a great job blah 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 
three weeks later, the Secretary of Interior goes in front of the same committee and suggests those changes that this economist had just mentioned. Those, those same people who thought the economist was a genius now tell the Secretary of Interior what an idiot she is. It's like the problem of how these lands are managed lies at the feet of Congress. Congress could change it if they wanted to, but they don't want to. When we say the feds, the damn feds this, the feds that, the feds are Congress. And anything that the feds are currently not doing with their lands that the states are, the feds could easily do that if Congress had the gumption to stand up and manage those lands the way they should be. But they don't. It just There's some in Congress who do not want those lands managed properly because if they were managed better, that would defeat their long-term argument, their long-term goal. Do you think that there is some of that actually happening in that members of Congress or these committees or whatever are purposely starving the Forest Service budget or the BLM budget or other things just to help improve their argument that the federal government can't manage these things and that they should be transferred and then eventually sold? Absolutely. I have no doubt about it. And the the fact that a bunch of Congress people sitting on the House Natural Resource Committee, the committee in charge of these lands, would say, yeah, that's why the states do such a great job. And then when the same exact almost verbatim recommendations are made for how the feds could improve the management of those lands, those same Congress people run the secretary out into the street screaming and yelling at her, that tells me these people have no interest in proper land management. It's about ideologies. And so let's... A lot of people may, may not be aware of how wildfire funding happens in the West. So the Forest Service owns a lot of the public timberland in the West. And when the Mississippi River floods or a hurricane hits the Gulf Coast or an earthquake hits California or t- tornadoes hit the Midwest, who shows up? FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency. Congress issues an appropriation and says, we're going to take care of that natural catastrophe through a special funding from Congress. That's not how they do it with fires. A lot of people think that's how they do it with fires. Here's how it works with fires. Congress says, Forest Service, here's your budget. Oh, yeah, we're cutting it more this year, and we're cutting it more this year. And, oh, when fires flare up, you better put them out. We're not giving you any money to put them out. You have to take that money out of your operating budgets your budgets that were there for roads, that were there for water maintenance, that were there to get timber sales done, blah, 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 blah. All that money gets taken away from operating budgets to use for wildfire fighting. These same people in Congress who complain about the feds refuse to set up a separate funding mechanism for the natural catastrophe of wildfires. Why why wildfires get treated differently than you know, floods and tornadoes and hurricanes, I don't know. But if you want to raise the hackles of some congressman who wants to take your public lands, go suggest to him that he change the funding for how wildfire fighting is funded. He'll, he'll, his eyes will bug out. He'll, he'll get livid. He'll, he'll tell you what a stupid idea that is. And those of us who 
aren't in D.C. all the time are kind of scratching their heads saying, really? Why is that such a dumb idea? So the flip side of that thing is they will say, well, the Forest Service has a big backlog on road maintenance. They have a big backlog on weed control. They have this big backlog for this and this and this, and you guys didn't get enough timber sales done this year. Well, if all of the foresters and timber managers and road people and everyone else are out fighting fires and all their budget is allocated to fighting fires or half of their budget, how are they supposed to do the rest of their work? So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of um, them wanting the federal government agencies to be underfunded. And, and I'm all about, you know, being as fiscally frugal as possible. But you also have to give them the resources to do the job that you ask them to do. And Congress can fix a lot of that, but they don't want to. So <laughs> any other any other person would be fired for sandbagging. <laughs> yeah, you would be. I mean, <laughs> and, how could uh, you, I mean, if Congress was, say we were shareholders and Congress was the board of directors of the corporation, and the board of directors was given a proposal by some consultants to say, hey, we can get a much greater return on your assets. One of our competitors is doing this. We would like to do the same thing. But your board of directors said, no, we reject that idea. The shareholders would remove that director or that board of directors immediately. I mean, we, we would laugh at the stupidity of that happening. But in Congress, you're allowed to do that. It, so, and as you can probably gather, when Randy goes to D.C. or I go across the West meeting with congressional people, um, <laughs> I'm not always given the warm welcome. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so but that that would imply I care. So tell I us don't. more. Tell us more about these meetings that you have, Randy. What's it like? What's the? And you've kind of alluded to it a little bit. But when you go to D.C. to have these conversations, what's the feedback you're getting? How are people taking what your side of this issue? Um, it's it's a mix. Um, some are there supporting our, our cause. Um, there are some people who are still, you know, feel there's a value in public lands. Uh, and then there are some who just say, you know, this is such a low priority list item. Thanks for your time, blah, blah, blah. And then there are those who say, yeah, we're glad to see it's low on the priority list of many because that allows us to accomplish our objective and so the within congress itself there's a growing frustration about how federal lands are managed but they're the ones who can fix the problem but they don't want to fix it okay so we don't have many timber sales uh, on federal land anymore because in our trade deals we let the canadians flood the softwood lumber market it really doesn't have as much to do with the forest service as it does just the market. The Canadians subsidize their logging industry. You get paid for building roads in Canada. Your stumpage is free. There's no tariffs. So the Canadians can flood the, the softwood lumber market in America anytime they want. Well, we Congress could change that and make it more profitable to be a logger, a mill owner in the United States, but they're not going to. 
Congress could change the fact that states, uh, and they could change the fact of what they charge for a coal royalty or an oil and gas royalty. And here's the flip side of that is whatever state that uh, resource is located in, they get a portion of that royalty, that federal royalty. It gets split with the states and the federal government. So by them keeping that royalty artificially low, they're hurting the states in addition to giving it away to, and this is purely my opinion, they are giving it away as their manner of repaying political favors. I mean, one of the currencies of the West is public resources that get repaid or or used to repay political favors. I, I wish I could say it was different. Sometimes it's quite discreet. Some some instances are just so blatant that you, you just shake your head and say, "Really?" So kind so. of like a, a guy goes, "Hey, I'm gonna I'll help fund your campaign, but you got to make sure I get uh, a little section of this uh, trout stream in Montana." Or not quite that blatant, but oh, okay, we, we we will put a bunch of money in your political campaign, but we want to make sure that oil and gas royalties stay low. Guess what? The guy gets elected. The Secretary of Interior comes forward and says, we, the BLM, the largest holder of oil and gas interests in in North America, think we should raise our royalty rate to be equivalent to the states in which we are operating. That politician who's received all those donations from that group all of a sudden attacks the Secretary of Interior. And then the next day, he's out there on the streets complaining how poorly the federal lands are managed and that the states do a better job. You know, and I, and I don't mean to pick on oil and gas. I, you know, I use oil and gas. I'm just using that as, as an example. It could be, you know, somebody who says, uh, you know, I want to have water rights. I want to have some sort of irrigation rights and make sure that no one else can make a claim and blah, blah, blah. And so... They make a donation to a politician, and the politician all of a sudden gums up any resolution of a lot of the water rights uh, adjudications and battles that we have in the West where water is very scarce. It's it's just so blatant in many instances. You just, it's dumbfounding that they can't get by with it, but oh well. So, <laughs> so we're talking a lot about through – the, through this whole issue, we're talking about they and them – and these people and these organizations, who are these people? Who are these organizations, Randy? Who are we actually talking about that is supporting this? I think, you know, if we can all decide that this is an important thing, we need to know who we need to start talking to to make a difference. So who who are these people and organizations? And, and that's where it gets to be difficult because since the Citizen United case that hit the Supreme Court in 2010, and the Supreme Court said that corporations have a right to free speech, and that they can participate in elections, and it got rid of a whole bunch of the disclosure requirements and reporting requirements. We don't know who they is or them or that group because they use 501c4 organizations, 501c9. I mean, no, I, I might have that wrong. I know they use 501c4s where you don't have to disclose who gave you your money. And you can engage in political activities. So we we don't really know. <laughs> a lot of people are like Citizens United. What does that mean? That, that didn't. Well, it affects us. It, 
it allows industries to go and heavily fund political activities without being ratted out, for lack of a better term. Um, and so there's no transparency to understand who donated to this senator or this congressman or congresswoman's cost, and is that affecting their positions on public land policy? Is it? You know, you have your, your, I mean, part of it is you, you get a little feel in these back and forth arguments because you see who shows up as the opposition when you are there promoting a policy that would help improve public land management, and they show up opposed to it just by default. They kind of show their hand a little bit. Is it fair to say that in many cases, or is it fair to assume, maybe I'm wrong here, but from a lot of things I've heard when I've done my own research and looking into this, it seems like a lot of the money that's being put into this type of work is coming from industry. People that would rather extract profit out of these lands, whether it be by sale or you know their use of it, that is their motivation. And it sounds like a lot of the the motivation and money and, and energy is coming from that side, pushing a lot of these politicians to say, "Hey, let, let's do this because it's good for the economy and, and it's also good for business." Not, I'm obviously we're all pro business, pro a lot of these things, but at the same time, I imagine there might be something going on there too, right? Yeah, that's. I mean, we've always in America had industry organizations involve themselves in policy to the extent they can. Um, so. A lot of instances, you will have a discussion about, okay, this is going to affect water quality. And you'll have somebody who's using the landscape to extract a resource who says, we want the lowest level of regulation because for us to comply with a higher level hurts our profit. And then you might have a community who needs that water for its water source saying, hey, wait a second. We... We drink this water. This is an absolute fundamental part of living, water. Um, and so very often it is private interest to have either economic uh, value at stake. Sometimes it's ideal, just strictly ideological interest at stake. Um, and a lot of times we don't know who it is. It's individuals with really, really big checks that are are funding a lot of the campaigns that are are the politicians who would like to take your public lands. So let's talk about that and then. So, so, but, and I just want to preface that, guys, but, you know, my brother's still a logger. My dad was a logger. I would probably be a logger except for the fact that I was the worst logger that ever, ever tried to start a chainsaw. <laughs> so my dad said, I don't have any money to send you to college, but you better figure it out because you're a terrible logger. So, I have nothing against natural resources. I mean, I use them. I, I'm all in favor of smart use of our resources. But when that that discussion then becomes leveraged to a discussion of let's get these public lands out of public hands, then I'm I'm going to stand up and say something about it. Yeah, there's got to be a threshold. There's got to be some balance and. Uh... You know, like you said, fair use, smart use of some of these things makes all the sense in the world. But if it gets so far out of hand where we're actually getting rid of them um, or you know, keeping the public from having the opportunities to use them, whatever it might be, then I think to your point, then someone needs to stand up and say, OK, things have gotten a little far too far in the other direction. So you mentioned campaigns, 
politics, all those things. So in a lot of cases, we may not know exactly where the money is going, but or where it's coming from. But I think in some cases, we do know where it's going. It's going to fund certain politicians, certain campaigns, etc. And I personally, Randy, hate getting into politics because it's one of those things that people will automatically put up a wall when they hear certain words or when they hear certain parties or when they hear certain ideas because we have these super passion, these really strong passions or ideologies that are embedded in a lot of us. And what I what bums me out in a lot of cases is that if we're just, when you talk parties, sometimes issues become politicized as to one or the other side and in the way things are going right it's a huge divide in between it's becoming a polarized political system where you are either this or you are that and if you're that I hate you and all that kind of stuff this is one of those issues that has become has become politicized and has been adopted by a party and I, and I worry about that um, and it makes it makes it tough for me as a voter too and I imagine a lot of people listening can you can you speak to this at all what what are we as hunters to do when we look at who to vote for, who to support, when we're seeing some parties and you know representing the idea of selling off these lands, some parties being you know in favor of protecting them, but then wanting to take away our rights uh, in other ways? How do you take, how do you make sense of all this, Randy? Yeah, it's it's hard to make sense of because you're exactly right that we as a society are becoming more and more polarized. We we are more and more accepting of I'm this label and someone else is that label. We like this, you know, kind of false dichotomy, this, uh, this, this whole idea that if you're not with me on this, you should be against me on everything else, blah, blah, blah. And so we end up in very often a discussion of someone saying, yeah, but I'm good on guns. Yeah, you can be good on guns and good on public land. But it's not, it's not one or the other. It can be both. And so when we enter these discussions, and I'm a very conservative person. I'm conservative socially, fiscally. Um, I'm definitely right a center. But the unfortunate fact that I cannot deny as a conservative person is every one of these efforts to rid us of the public lands have come from people who are of my same kind of feeling of conservative, small government, frugality, blah, blah, blah. And that frustrates me because I can make a counter argument that, you know what, these public lands, at least where I live and a lot of other communities, are a huge asset, a huge economic driver. But instantly that person wants to drag me into a, you're either with me or against me, you're either a Republican or a Democrat or you're a liberal or a conservative, what are you? Because you, and it's almost like they want to say, I'm going to be good on guns, but I'm not going to be good on public lands because the other guys are, are, are not trying to take your public lands. So I got to have a position counter to them. So my position is I got to get rid of these public lands. I'm oversimplifying there, but, that's really this politicized environment forces or not forces allows for people to take sides on what I'm, what I think are they take sides based on arguments that are not complete. If the argument was complete, 
we could have a discussion of, hey, there is a place for public lands. You don't have to be just one or the other. You you don't have to feel that because you're good on guns, you have to be bad on public lands, or because you're good on public lands that you have to be bad on guns, or you know, it doesn't have to be guns. It could be any other issue that is primarily a, a right or left polar opposite on that topic. But it's it's a very hard discussion to have hunters get drawn into it. And I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat. I I am of the hunter, angler, fishing, hunting, access, what's good for the future party is what I am. And any politician who doubts that will quickly learn that if you're on my side, I'll support. You know, I'll give you all the praise in the world. If you're against me on those topics, I'm coming after you. And I don't really care what party you're with. One of the, the, you know, the history of hunting and conservation in America is a remarkable story. It goes back 130, 40 years ago where hunters started this. And it's only been the last 10 to 15 years that we've allowed hunting and conservation and access to become a political issue. It used to be apolitical, where both sides would support what we were doing. And now it's been drawn into the political morass. And at we as hunters, one of the problems we have that, that makes us ill-prepared to, to do battle over there in the political arena is, one, we just don't like politics. Two, we're kind of loners. We don't like to go out and speak and, and talk. But... Probably institutionally, the biggest problem we have is most of our advocacy and most of our representation comes through Whitetails Unlimited or Ducks Unlimited or the Rocky Mountain Out Foundation, 501c3 organizations, who, by the very nature of the tax code, cannot get involved in lobbying and politics. So these other groups are able to take our issues and drag them over into the political sphere, and we can't do much about it unless we individually engage in that. And when we do individually engage in it, it splits hunting camps. It causes, you know, brothers and cousins to argue about this or that. And they, when everyone gets frustrated, we just try to divide ourselves along a party line or a liberal versus the conservative or a whatever. To me, that is, that's exactly how the opposition wins is when we decide we're going to let it be defined as a R or D, a left or right. This is an issue about hunting and fishing. It's that simple. It's about access. It's about the public land that someone gave to us that we have responsibility to give to the next generation in a better state than what we receive now. And if we can resist the temptation to make it an R or D, uh, a left or right, whatever issue, we're better off. If we can force politicians to say, okay, I'm good on guns, all right, we like that. Thank you. Please be good on public lands. Or I'm good on public lands. Okay, please be good on guns. You you, you don't have to be one or the other. You can do both. We have examples out there. So, hey, being involved in the politics of this is, is kind of a crazy place to be as a hunter because I, I really have no use for politics. I don't care what side anyone is on. I just want to know that you are going to do the right thing for the cause that's important to me, hunting, fishing, access. Yeah, I uh, 
I can relate to a lot of things you said there. And, um, you know, I personally, I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode before we brought you on, Randy, I think I did, um, that, you know, I personally have been going through these kind of oscillations as a person trying to understand where I fit in the political spectrum and how much I, how much attention I pay to it and, and all of that. And um, I, I came from a conservative background too. That's how I grew up. I have a lot of um, beliefs that fall in line with some of those uh, groups. At the same time, though, now I most definitely do not define myself any longer as a Republican or Democrat. I fully believe I'm a member, hopefully I think now the second member, of the hunting and fishing and public lands and wildlife habitat party underneath the, the, the leadership of Randy Newberg. Um, (laughs) 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 no, because I think you're absolutely right. I think that this really is, we as hunters and anglers and outdoorsmen and women, we have to resist that temptation to fall prey to this either or mindset or this, you're either with me or against me and all these things because this party says we support A, B, and C. So I'm going to support A, B, and C because of it. And as you've mentioned, a couple very important things to outdoors people, the right to bear arms and the right to public access and habitats and wildlife, productive wildlife populations, unfortunately has been split between parties. And it drives me up the wall and it frustrates me to no end. And it gets confusing too um, because I sit here and I, I watch CNN and I'm watching what these people are saying, especially in a year like this where the presidential election is going on and, and all these things are being thrown around and it's very contentious and lots of emotion and information and misinformation. And it makes it hard to figure out what to do when you believe so strongly in some things that are being split right down the middle by either party and, and you have to pick sides. How do you handle that, Randy? How do you approach a year like this, a presidential election year like this, when we're saying, what in the world do I do? When I, There's very important things to me that it's hard to find someone that's checking all the box, all the boxes. Yeah, it, it is, and I, I don't think it's realistic to expect <clears throat> we're ever going to find a candidate that agrees with everything one of us feel. Um, but I, I think it's incumbent upon hunters and anglers and people who enjoy public access to make sure their voice is heard. I think if we have, as hunters have a fault that's inherent to our personality that we don't want to ruffle any feathers. We're well-behaved people. We're, you know, we kind of, I know we'll just take our lump and move forward kind of folks. And, and I get that. But the rest of the groups, the, the rest of the people advocating a cause are being the squeaky wheels. And they're getting the grease. And I think we, as our community of outdoors people, need to start being a, a bit of the squeaky wheel. And I don't expect that whoever's going to win the primary on one side or the other is going to agree with me on everything. There might be one or two of them that don't agree with me on anything. Um, but once they get elected or, or get their nomination, if we're talking presidentially, and the same thing for whether it's senator, congressperson, <clears throat> governor, whatever, I engage myself to try and influence their perspective on something. I try to get them to understand these issues that are important to me, why they're important to me, and make it a higher priority item for them. And 
if they don't necessarily agree with me completely on something, I don't just completely <laughs> write them off or or forget about it. I, a part of our process of government is you have to engage yourself if you want a result. And I feel strongly that if I engage myself, I'm doing as much or maybe more to influence the outcome than the one time every four years I go and cast a vote in a, in a ballot, uh, you know, check the tab or fill in the oval on my ballot. I think my, my daily activity, my continual interaction with these policymakers has a greater effect on where these outcomes are than where this one person stands and he or she got elected governor or president or senator or whatever. Um, to me, that's that's the other part of government that happens for three years and four, 364 days other than the election. So who, who we vote for, everyone's going to determine that. Um, I have no problem voting for a third-party person or a write-in. And some people are going to say, oh, if you do a write-in, that means you're going to let some gun grabber get in. I value my vote more than giving it to the lesser of two evils. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people feeling that way right now. How many times have you and your friends sat around and talked politics and said, well, I voted for this person because I thought they were the lesser or the least damaging of two options? I've I've done that. I'm done with it. I am no longer giving my vote to the lesser of two idiots because in the end I've still (laughs) voted for an idiot. I will is, write in a vote or I will vote for a third-party candidate before I will anymore give one of these groups or one of these people who I don't think deserves it something I value as much as I value my vote. Were you going to say something, Dan? Oh, no. I was just going to say that I'm pretty pissed. Like, this... <laughs> this <laughs> like, me? No, not at you. No. This, whole, this whole conversation we've had is is just like got me fired up. Like when we talk about sandbagging, you know, like if I didn't try or at at school or I didn't get my work done or my chores done at home, I got slapped across the, the back of the head by my mom. Yeah. Like, you know, get your ass in gear, or, or you know, you know, hey, uh, why did you throw rocks at uh, in a parking lot? Uh, you break the car windows. That's called common sense, dumbass. You know, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we we need people like you to start showing up at some of these, uh, showing up in D.C. and telling people what's what. Yeah, I would be that guy's like, get him out of here, and then I'd get tased. <laughs> I, I, I tell you that I'm the same way. Coming from a logging family, my wife knows that cussing is an art form. <laughs> and she always reminds me as I'm heading out the door when she drops me off at the airport, now control your temper. Cussing yeah. doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> But I'm with you. I, as I'm sure the listeners have probably noticed, my tone and my demeanor has gotten pretty riled up for some of this discussion because this is this is so important to me. And it, and I don't know how to explain it. It's hard to explain. But if I never shoot another elk in my life, I've shot more than my share. But the fact that someday, 20, 40, 80, 100, 200 years from now, some other Randy Newberg is going to realize his dream of being an elk hunter on public lands. 
That's important to me. That's more important to me than killing my next elk. And I don't know, maybe I've, well, I know I've probably been dropped on my head too many times, but <laughs> I, I just feel that strongly about it. And I think if there's one thing that has, that hunters have stood head and shoulders above the rest of our society and why we've accomplished so much in the face of such great challenges, what we've done to conserve landscapes and protect species and, and enhance and, and increase populations of species is we kept a vision that was not next week or next month or next quarter or next year. Our vision was always a horizon that was a generation away or more more than one generation away. And if we start lowering, lowering our horizons, we're going to aim low and hit even lower in what we accomplish. And I, I just, I'm not willing to do that. And most of the hunters I talk to, like you down when you get wound up over this, is because you share that same thing. You want this to continue. You want it to be better for the next person. And I think that's where we as hunters, sooner or later, are gonna, our threshold is going to be met, where we're going to get pretty active about this. Um, I hope if it's not met already, I hope it gets met tomorrow. So to that point, I think we absolutely we need to be encouraging both we, myself and Dan. We need to do a better job of stepping up and starting to take action. I know you already are, Randy, um, but I hope we can also encourage our listeners to as well. Um, but I, I guess I do want to not beat around the bush a little bit. And we've talked about the fact that you know I hate the fact that it's become so politicized and so partisan. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, Randy. But this issue of transferring and selling public lands has become a plank in the Republican Party platform. So that's like an official party line now. Is that right? It is, unfortunately. And as a person who, like I said, is socially and fiscally conservative, who, you know, is very, very adamant about the Second Amendment, that disturbs me heavily. Um, And it's not just a national policy issue for that party at the state level. It's the same thing. Um, two years ago, the Montana Republican Party made it a, a very big deal that they had unanimous vote to add the transfer of these lands as a party platform plank. And it's just like, who's who's leading this? Uh, who, who's doing the thinking for them? And after my disappointment, I sat back and looked at it and said, well, here's how politics works these days. Um, you get some consultant to come and tell you the polling data says this, or here's a strategy of how we're going to accomplish X, Y, or Z. And so these party bosses, uh, whether they're state party bosses or national party bosses, lean heavily on consultants for forming these positions on on topics they don't know much about. And if the other side has done one really good thing, it's that they have invested tons of money in highly paid, slick-talking consultants to come to the party bosses and make the sales pitch that selling the public lands is good for the party. And that's how that stuff gets in there. So It, it, it sounds screwed up, but that's how a lot of that stuff gets in. That, yeah, it does sound screwed up. Um, 
And I guess with that being the case, right, I, I too feel that same disappointment. And like I mentioned, I definitely have um, a background similar to yours too, Randy, it sounds like. And I don't care if you're listening right now, I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat or in the hunting, angling outdoors party or wherever you stand on these issues. If you do have the passion that I think most of us do have about these these landscapes, these habitats, access to them to hunt and fish and do all these other things, we need to start taking action on it. And historically, there's probably a, a majority of hunters would be would fall towards the conservative side, would fall towards the Republican side. So let's just say let's let's go with that assumption. Let's just say that the majority of people right now listening might be leaning in the Republican way. I don't care either way, but let's just hypothetically say that's the case. If that's the case, and given the fact that right now, like you mentioned, Randy, a party line, like a, a goal within the Republican Party now, at least from the top level, is to sell off or transfer these public lands. To your point a couple minutes ago, Randy, we, the people, or anyone who wants to be involved with those politicians or wants to support them, it's our job to go and say, hey, that's a really stupid idea. I want to support a lot of the things that you do and the, that you work towards, but that is something that we can't have. And so we need to start, like you said, being that greasy wheel um, because it doesn't need to be an either or between being good on guns or individual rights or whatever it is and habitat, public access, all that. Um, so whichever party or wherever you place yourself, we need to be talking to our representatives, our senators, all these other people, pr- presidential candidates and saying, hey, this is a really important issue. And there's a lot of people in a lot of communities and a lot of businesses and a whole lot of different things that are going to be impacted by this. Let's make sure you're going in the right direction. Yeah, and uh, often I hear people say, well, I don't want to upset them because they're good on guns. Right? And I get that. But why are we not afraid? And, and let's, so we've kind of used the assumption that most hunters are right of center, and that all the data shows that to be true, and that's why we're disappointed when the party further to the right supports this. But let's take the mirror and go the other way and just about all gun legislation uh, that restricts the second amendment comes from the democratic side. Why do we not have any hesitation about writing a letter, making a comment or giving that democratic legislator or Senator or Congressperson how we feel about certain gun issues when it's detrimental to us. But for some reason, we refuse to convey the same frustration or the same feelings when it's a Republican who's doing something on the other side on public land. I don't understand the thought process that gives someone the comfort in saying, oh, why do you do this on my guns, but yet they're afraid that they'll offend someone if they go say the same thing on public land to, to someone on the other side. I Maybe I'm too simple-minded to understand that hesitation. But uh, I I just think that we are at that point where hunters are going to have to speak up for their own costs and engage with these politicians. If you know a county commissioner, if you know a state legislator, if you know someone at a local level, that person hearing your concerns, and if they hear it from enough of you, will carry it to the next level, who carries it to the next level. They say all politics is local, and to some degree it is. If you have a, a congressperson in your district who gets 
12 calls in emails from the same on the same topic, they're going to tell us Stafford, we'll find out what's going on there. Because if 12 people call, that means there's probably 12,000 people who feel the same way just in that little area. So it it does make a difference. It, I know we feel at times that the big money machines and the big political parties on both sides control the argument, and they, they do to some degree. But nothing scares a politician more than a group of pissed-off hunters. For good it, reason. It, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not because we're going to show up armed, but because when you piss us off, we plan to do something about it. And we're good at hunters when they do finally get mad enough are good at getting people unelected. Well, I I certainly hope and uh, I expect that that's going to be the case moving forward, that regardless of where we individually feel we fit within the party spectrum, if you are left or right or center or whatever it is, hopefully I think all of us hunters and outdoorsmen and women and people that appreciate the incredible resource we have of these of these public lands that we can all kind of decide that yeah this is something that needs to be sorted out needs to be taken care of and we'll talk to our representatives regardless of what party they may be and say hey this needs to be a priority we need to refocus our attention here and i hope of everyone everyone listening today that you can take rainy's advice and uh be that greasy wheel speak to your representatives we don't need to settle for either or we don't need to settle for take all the above and you're stuck with it i think we can start we need to start taking an active interest and an active role in informing where informing the direction of where things are going to go it's it's time that we don't just let things go idly by and, and roll with it. I think we need to start, really start forming that path forward. So, I agree, Randy. This has been this has been really helpful. I think this is one of those topics that is evidenced by the fact that we've just talked about it for over an hour and a half. Uh, there's a lot to talk really? about. There's a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gosh, sorry, yeah. guys. No, no. I apologize to your audience. They're probably. They probably dropped the line a long time ago. They didn't get that knucklehead <laughs> off the wire. Gee, I hope not. Although, although Dan did drop off, so that might be evidence of uh, <laughs> he actually had to go take care of uh, family yeah. family stuff. But um, but no, this this has been terrific, and um, I'm really glad that you could share your your experience and background and knowledge of all these things because it's something that, yeah, it's starting to show up in the media, the hunting and outdoors media more, which is a good thing. It's still something that there's a lot of questions about. And uh, my goal here was to really try to answer some of those questions, get people thinking about it, get people hopefully ready to start taking some action. And I think uh, you were able to really help us take a step in that direction. So Martin, thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. Is there, is there anywhere, and I know there is, but would you like to share with our audience where they can go to hear more from you, your opinions and thoughts on any of these other things, or just to get some more Randy Newberg in their life? Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity, Mark. And uh, one thing I'm going to definitely do with my following is to share your podcast with with all of my folks who watch my TV show and, and listen that. to my podcast. Um if, if people are interested, I've done some episodes of my podcast. It's called Hunt Talk Radio, Randy Newberg Unfiltered. Um, I've done some episodes specific to a few of the topics we've talked about today. Um, they can just get that out on iTunes or Stitcher, or you can go to our YouTube channel. Now we're loading our podcast episodes right up on our YouTube channel, and it's called Randy Newberg Hunter. And uh, 
we would love to see all of your listeners who maybe are primarily whitetail hunters, love to see them all be, also get a taste of the West um, and, and get the addiction for elk, mule deer, antelope, whitetail, whatever out here. And if they're interested in that, uh, we have the big forum called hunttalk.com where, boy, we we talk about everything related to, to public land hunting and we help people apply for tags, figure out drawing systems, uh, a lot of really good stuff out there. So when my TV show isn't airing in quarters three and four, those are the best places to reach me, either on the Hunt Talk Forum, listen to our podcast, or check out our YouTube channel. So, And your uh, your YouTube channel now has old episodes of your shows, right? Right, yeah, we're uh, actually, our old show, On Your Own Adventures, we're, we've loaded the, those four seasons up. And now in the next month, we're going to start loading up the last three seasons we've produced, uh, which are the, titled under the new show called Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg. So if people go out there and hit the subscribe button, and it doesn't cost you anything to hit the subscribe button, it's not like you're paying a fee to subscribe, but hitting the subscribe button on our YouTube channel means that you will get notified when we load up a new episode. And uh, it, so far, it's turned out great. The the traffic is just growing like crazy. I I did not know that many people really cared about Randy Newberg stumbling around in the woods trying to hurt himself. <laughs> maybe maybe they're just bored in the winter. I don't know. The, there's there certainly is probably a little bit of that. At least for those people who are listening <laughs> to this podcast, because they if they're listening to this show, they must be feeling the same way. Uh, but I but I do highly recommend anyone listening if you haven't already take Randy up on that offer. I'm subscribed to the YouTube channel. I'm subscribed to his podcast, and I check out Hunt Talk and all the above are great resources for uh, both just entertaining and interesting, but also educational. Uh, Randy, as you've heard over the last hour and a half or so, has got a lot of great perspective and experience on some of these important issues to all hunters. So definitely check it out. And, and your website, Randy, is randynewberg.com, right? Yeah, yeah. randynewberg.com will give you links to every one of our platforms. So that, that's kind of the clearinghouse where when in doubt, go to randynewberg.com and you'll find a link to all of our platforms. Perfect. Well, uh, I think with that, we'll wrap things up, Randy. So, again, thank you so, so much. You're, you're welcome, Mark. I'm not going to let you go without you making a promise. And what's that? that when, this summer you're going to come to Bozeman and we're going to get together and you're going to be on my podcast and we're going to go fishing or something. I will uh, I will accept that and promise you to take you up on that because that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mark. Thanks so much. I appreciate all you do. I appreciate your listeners. They're great folks, and uh, keep carrying on. I really appreciate it. Sounds great, Randy. I'll see you this summer. Yep. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation, found it helpful, educational, and maybe put a little fire underneath your butt to uh, take some action on these things. I appreciate you sticking with us here on an extra long episode, uh, but hopefully you'll agree that this was an important enough topic for us to do that. So thank you for your time. Uh, Speaking of thanks, we do need to thank our partners who have helped make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sick Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And uh, one other thing that I forgot to mention was that there is a petition you can sign at the sports, at, sorry, the URL is sportsmansaccess.org. Uh, and that's a petition uh, to support our public lands and uh, 
you know, say that, hey, we do not want these to be transferred or sold. So check out sportswinsaccess.org for more information on this topic as well as uh, the resources we mentioned earlier at Randy Newberg's website and podcast. All the above will be super helpful in addition to what we talked about here today. So with that all said, thank you again for joining us. I appreciate it. And until next time, stay wired to hunt.